Um, one of the questions that I'm trying to pose to you and, and engage with um, in a broader way is why we care about Magna Carta. As one rather grumpy um, Australian scholar wrote, only a few years ago, why did we care about an old tacky brown document, half burned, written in a foreign language? What, what, what can it mean to us? But quite clearly, even in the events of yesterday, where we saw our current Prime Minister, who I, I fear David Letterman was probably right, um, but misguided account of what Magna Carta means, um, try and capture the authority and legitimacy of that tradition to a particular moment to do with the EU and the Declaration of Human Rights. Um, it was seen um, in Australia in 2001, we would have seen the Prime Minister there try and use the launch of an exhibition of their 1297 copy to project Australia's role behind America and the UK in the war on terror. If we'd been at Runnymede in 1957, both British and American ambassadors saw Magna Carta as a prophylactic against godless communism. So Magna Carta has been used as um, a, a legitimate source for authorizing all sorts of contemporary events. And what I want us to think about is how and when did that first happen? And I think one thing to always bear in the back of your mind, perhaps, is that Magna Carta was a moment, it was a historical event that happened on those water meadows in 1215. But it's also a text. It's a collection of ideas. And it's the sort of intertwining and sometimes separate use of that moment of the barons confronting one that can be interpreted in lots of different connected to a set of ideas. What we always need to remember is the 1215 Magna Carta was a peace treaty. It was not a philosophical document crafted by you know, court philosophers and theologians setting out a set of um, principles, although it did collect and combine a series of fundamental legal principles about the right to trial, the right to not to be detained, the right to property, the right to liberty of corporations. That, that was almost, and I'm very willing to be challenged, almost accidental. Um, I've given you a photograph here of, taken about three years ago, showing how in one sense a group of young people um, see the space as still very important to ongoing dialogues about what is freedom, what is democracy. Um, the profound irony here is that this um, image has been used by Surrey County Council um, to represent a group of young people debating freedom. Um, it's actually a group of um, diggers um, who have occupied the, the meadow above Rally Mini, did so in 2012, and are still there and actually were sort of being subjected to, in the week running up to last um, yesterday's events, rigorous police scrutiny. And the diggers, of course, took huge pressure and said, you're breaking the law, and you're breaking Magna Carta, clause 39. So there was a, a sort of living element, almost, 
Um, so it's rather ironic. I think it's a very clever photograph because, uh, um, and in one sense, it, it tells us something about subversive qualities in Magna Carta. Magna Carta can be cited to authorise the rule of law, legitimate political authority. But as I'll hopefully discuss in a moment or two, it also legitimises resistance and protest from marginal groups. And that sort of dual tension between being a great image of authority, but also something you cite when you don't want to be imprisoned or when you want to resist or call a crowd, is very important. Um, the diggers, I think there was an interesting battle in the newspapers about a month ago. The Sunday Mail portrayed the diggers as drug-crazed, filthy hooligans. The Independent, on one thing, had managed to find two of the very charming young women who were from home with their small children, very immaculately dressed, cooking with their Le Creuset pots and making espresso for the visiting journalists. <laughs> There's some weird debate going on here. But that's the nature of Magna Carta. It's protean and it's malleable. It's a, one of the other sort of ways of representing what happened. Um, this is a very fine Lady Victorian doorstop. You can visit and even hold us in, in church and museum. And I haven't tried, but apparently you can go on eBay and find a number of these for, for a while. Um, but why would you want Magna Carta hold probably your door? Because I think that's one of the things we, we perhaps need to think about the iconic value of the image or the object. And if we do a store poll, how, how many people have got Magna Carta on their wall at home? That's a stretch. In the 18th century, as we all know, lots of people would have had Magna Carta in facsimile, beautiful facsimile, on their wall. Um, probably next to the facsimile of the death warrant, the execution of Charles I, or the Bill of Rights. Um, so there's a sort of tradition of saying, our house is safe, we've got Magna Carta. Um, I want to really use a lot of images to explore how Magna Carta turned from that feudal peace treaty into what, what I probably naively call a liberty document after the 17th century. How did it transform itself, or how was it transformed? Um, and I, I think we can argue very powerfully that the 17th century is the turning uh, the, the point um, of that moment. And indeed, in this tradition is very powerful globally. This is the front doors, bronze and gold, of the American Supreme Court. And See, um, there's a sort of history from antiquity all the way through. Well, we have Magna Carta, then importantly, I'm going to talk about in a bit, we have Sir Edward Cook and James I. This is an image that every American lawyer and every citizen in one sense is absolutely familiar with. So there are two Magna Carta moments inscribed in the history of American freedom. And I don't want to offend any Americans who may be 
which those remember in 1776, was not the first American Revolution, but the last British Revolution, which was British people, communities, using principles of freeborn Englishmen against what they saw as the tyranny of George III. So it's unsurprising in one sense that Magna Carta um, remains important in that context. But there the, the panels blown up a little bit for the um, Edward Cook, yeah. a rather famed general. And the, the scroll behind us, rather good, I think. Um, so I want to think about how images of Magna Carta get invested with this sort of cultural power. Certainly, talk about Edward Cook. Cook, armed with the Magna Carta, believes he can take on the monarchy. I mean, he was very arrogant and a very brave man, but he believed, armed with his erudition, he could prosecute the king for an illegal tyrannical act. Later on in the 18th century, John Wilkes, and we'll look at some of his images, could, by citing Magna Carta, by distributing literature that showed him his Magna Carta under his arm or in his back pocket or stuck in his hat, when he needed to, when he was under threat of prosecution under a general warrant, the Magna Carta was illegal, he could mobilize 10 to 20,000 people onto the streets of London. Well, if you think about it, that, that would be a real challenge even today if you were trying to protect um, or, or, or defend yourself from illegal detention. So there's something about the image and its connection to that tradition that's very important. Um, I think, in, in, interestingly, I don't know how many people have visited Magna Carta uh, running in the moment. It was, of course, called the Charter of Running in the first century or so rather than Magna Carta, it's the latest sort of iterations that they have made. I, I would really recommend you go a little bit busy at the moment, because it's a spectacular site for public commemoration of freedom around the globe. There's not only the JFK monument, the Temple of Liberty to Magna Carta, but also the National Air Force, and we have the memorial to those fighter pilots who died <coughs> in one sense, across those meadows, looking towards London, we have a site where people's love, people who sacrificed their life for freedom, presidents who changed individuals' freedom, and the, the, the ceiling of the Carter's place. It's a very evocative place. It's made even more spectacular now by the um, introduction of, of a new and very Mostly powerful um, piece of public art called Juries that was opened yesterday. Um, Twelve jury seats that you're welcome to sit on and imagine sitting in judgment, each of them decorated with moments about freedom and liberty and democracy from 800 years, but from the globe. So Malala Yousafzai is recorded in a little bit of that. Um, Gandhi. Nelson Mandela, um, a whole series of civil rights issues in, in America and in English um, and European history. So decoding that principle, I love the idea that you could 
travel from Pakistan and see immediately a connection between your culture and that broader global culture. You know, there is a global magnetic movement. The Philippines recently issued um, a charter, a Magna Carta for the poor, a statutory piece of legislation in the Philippines that will give all poor people rights to education, water, and food. So that Magna Carta brand, terrible thing to say, um, is increasingly powerful and manages, and this is again its protein quality, I think, it manages to be amphibious across culture. And it's not regarded by, say, the Pakistan government as, as the tool of Western imperialism. It's regarded as a, a real statement. And UNESCO, of course, identified as part of the cultural memory of human life. Um, so how did that happen? We, we know, and I'm sure um, both David Carpenter and um, earlier speakers have talked about the diffusion and the persistence of reissuing Magna Carta toward into the end of the 13th century, and probably the persistence of the practice of the Magna Carta is a significant constitutionally shaped document. It disappears from the historical picture between the 14th and the early 16th century. It's there. And, and I think some of the research that's going on in the University of Anglia talks about how it's used in provincial society, especially in issues over regulating access to land, property, fish. Fish are very important. I recently spoke to a group of um, eight-year-olds, a hundred-year-olds, um, and they were very animated by making art and fishing. I did not expect. <laughs> Maybe that's the next project to do, to with all the Anglican society see what they feel about freedom of agriculture. Although it is still being cited um, in disputes in Morecambe and in North Devon over the rights of locals to harvest seafood and whatever they call the lobster. Taking prosecutions out against the big commercial companies who just come and boot them or whatever. So, you know, it, almost every element of Magna Carta has had some subsequent resonance at the ages. So, why did Magna Carta exercise this perdurable enchantment? You know, it's almost a political glamour, I think. Now, the answer to that can be sort of anthropological. Alan Ryan, the, the great philosopher, says, well, you know, we all like to show that our opinions have been around a long time, they're almost right. And certainly that idea um, of buying in an important tradition is very powerful in Australasia, more so in New Zealand than perhaps in um, Australia and in America. You know, if, if you've only landed on the, the continent, years or so before, you can open that the car and say, oh, we've got 800 years of legal tradition to do it. Um, so that, that sort of element of constructing an ancient constitution, you know, perhaps not always immediately obvious what the contents of that constitution are, and that's where Edward Cook is really very important, 
in trying to populate all of that. That, that is one of the principles I think we even sort of see today. It must be right because it's old. And I, I was at a conference recently in Hungary with Plato, asked a simple question Is it right because it's right or is it right because it's old? Very often it's difficult to distinguish those Are the principles that are in Magna Carta right because they are universally? Or do they become right because they've been sort of tuned over and accepted and adapted and imported over years? I think it's a very difficult question. Um, some of the very technical lawyers look at some of the principles and trace them back to Roman law, as we saw in that um, image there, Justinian's code, very sort of crisp statements of principle. We can see embedded in How did all of this change? If, if we said, let me try and hold a few more years, why in 1500 Magna Carta is a sort of you know, existing few manuscript copies, it may be in collections of statutes, but to a public audience, if there is such a thing there, it doesn't mean very much. 1508. Magna Carta gets subjected to a new technology, print. So from 1508, and this is the uh, title page opening to the British Library, Magna Carta is in print in Latin. And then in 1504, it's translated into English. And I think you can trace really from those moments, and of course, the, the English edition gets uh, reissued dozens of times. The text also gets incorporated into something that we eventually call statutes at large, and that is reprinted into the 20th century. Um, there's now an electronic version called legislation.gov.org.uk. Uh, unfortunately, if you put Magna Carta into that search, it flashes up with a label at the top. No known consequences of this law. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. But that's because many of the key elements around detention and jury trial have been substituted by more modern legislation. But if the process of putting it into print was not trivial, it meant if you're a gentleman and you came to an inner court to learn about the law, not because you wanted to be a practicing lawyer but perhaps because you were going to retire to your provincial estate and enact justice in that locality, you buy a handbook, a textbook. You know all these dark rooms to go to, you know, you're going to find in the evening in the parking and drinking. Um, and the first thing you would see every time you opened your book of statues was Magna Carta. So Magna Carta sort of transformed itself, not necessarily, into a constitutional document, but into a foundational statute. This is where English law starts. Now, of course, that rested on um, a, a rather fuzzy idea that Magna Carta wasn't innovative. It summarized and captured a, a tradition that went back into time immemorial. Yeah, that's a great sort of tactic, isn't it? 
Now, all of this is legitimate, it goes way, way back. So far back, we can't find out what. But believe me, it did. Um, you know, if a salesman came to us, yeah, this battery's been running for a thousand years, honestly. You, you dispute it. But that principle that Magna Carta is not innovative by simply rehearsing and renovating an old tradition is an absolutely key piece. That is the background, I think, for Edward Cook. Edward Cook, Cook. Churchman, 
and see him represented in a particularly sort of unpleasant way. But certainly 16th century England is not interested in those monkish chronicles because they're bound to represent an anti-papal king in the wicked lives. Um, I suspect it's the 18th and 19th century. And then probably Disney are <laughs> for the sort of badly of King John. Although it is quite clear, especially from David Carpenter's book, that he was an absolute scandal. Um, he, he couldn't keep his hands off. It was land, the daughters, the wives, whatever. Um, the fish, the <laughs> forests. Um, so in one sense, he, he wasn't a good king. However, Cook recognizes as early as 1604 how, in one sense, the 1215 chapter is a document that exposes bad statecraft. The, the issues that King John was, was facing around the lack of revenue and his need constantly to be experimental about finding, the capturing of people's um, land, etc., etc., holding hostages, were confronting the early modern state in a very similar way. <coughs> and it, it was a personal revelation to me to read Nick Benson's little short introduction, having read a whole series of papers about the fiscal crisis um, of John, uh, James I and Charles I. Because if you were Edward Cook, and had immersed yourself in Magna Carta, and seen where Magna Carta was trying to restrain royal property. And then you see James I imposing taxes on currents, or selling awards, or trying to steal people's forest lands. And you were a sharp cookie, if you could. Straight away, he could see the parallel, and he could see how Magna Carta was once again absolutely relevant text. His times. And yeah, he did cook a very high national office. Um, and it's certainly the sense in which James tried to buy him off by giving him office. It didn't work. James was a red so David Cook was an absolutely resolute defender of the common law and had almost an odd pleasure in taking the monarchy to court defend that principle against the legal prerogative act. James was quite clever manipulator of his court, his parliament. His son Charles was not. And Cook really took against the um, extension of royal prerogative that Charles I pursued in the mid-1620s. Famously forced loan, but we also need to remember that Charles was doing things like um, declaring the forest deed, his forest, and sending uh, various unfortunate chaps to the forest deed saying, You need to pay us some money now. I mean, deed, I don't know, I was born in the forest of deed. You wouldn't want to do that today, <laughs> never alone in the 17th century. The forest of deed, um, we actually said, no, I don't think so. We might be thinking of being able to go, this is our forest. 
if you don't like it, send some troops. Uh, which indeed did happen in the 1630s, and they lost. They came back, and Charles said, well, let's just forget that ever happened. But Cook could see the connection between that sort of conduct, forced loans, where you know, the local elites and gentry were told simply to contribute. Some of them resisted, and the 1626 forced loan case. Six members, five members were put on trial. Charles I, thanking the state, was trying to corrupt the judicial process. He leant on the judges and he almost ordered the conviction of these things. Cook, a very, very clever word, Cook on berserk. This, this made not only the initial use of royalty a bad thing. But the fact that the king was now tampering with the due process of law, detaining free men from you know, their, their liberties and stealing their property was a sort of triple whammy. Um, and Coke was personally involved in, in that defence. And the next thing he did, he wasn't in the league, he said, right, next parliament, uh, we're going to get the king, we're going to have to force the king to reissue Magna Carta. Um, Charles thought that was the joke at first. But do, do you know who's talking to? Uh, I'm the king. I'm appointed by God. All land in England is mine. Uh, I am the source of law. So just go away. Um, Cook was extraordinarily great. And pushed and pushed and pushed. The result was the so called Petition of Rights of 1628. Is regarded still as part of our unwritten constitution. James, uh, Charles, sorry, was very, very unhappy at being cornered and is reported to have torn pages of the Commons Journal out um, and disposed of them. He sought a promise book that he would return at some point to the reissue of the Charter, what we know from his private papers. He had absolutely no intention. Cook said, Magna Carta has no people. Now the consequence immediately of that was that Charles I decided he could do without Parliament um, until 1640. So in one sense Charles was forced into more and more sort of prerogative measures. Cook surprisingly escaped um, execution. If I were Charles I, I would have had a house burnt down in uh, because that was ultimately the consequence of, of Charles' conduct, was that he ended up on trial in 1649 and was executed. Um, Cook was on his deathbed in the summer of 1634, and it was rumoured he was about to publish the second volume. It's this, I wouldn't remember it's enormously large, exceptionally large. The second volume of his Institutes of Laws that focused mainly on the Magna Carta, but particularly on the legal home of the free man and brought. Charles I discovered this was going on, heard Cook was dying, and sent the body boys around, raided his stone, and removed the different sort of reports we get different now. Fifty boxes of notes. Now Charles I must have been a
and in various other places in the 1760s and 1770. So we can see that continuity of the Cookian defense of the rule of law, but also its use somehow as a, a marker of resistance. Now, I realize I'm pushing on far too much, so we'll just look at some pictures that will try and instantiate this tradition. I mean, there is a wonderful book by Byron Bailey called The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution that really details a lot of the technical publications. But at one point in the 1680s, William III is aware of Magna Carta. They're arguing about whether we should put Cook's Golden Passages up on every guild hall in England in gold. So that everybody is to walk to school or walk to work and see those principles. Now, I mentioned before the iconography, of course, and this is deeply ironic, um, hardly anybody had seen the original Magnemite. Cook had had access to the Cotton Library. Um, by the 1730s, again, the print is important, they are making these beautiful. Of course, all, all, all of this baronial stuff is in a printer's edition, and you'll notice see it's a reproduction of the burnt seal, as you can see it today. This is incredibly expensive, it's still in Latin, and it's part of that, what can we call it, making the document ubiquitous. Yeah, it, it, it's now no longer possible not to know what man can come <coughs> Here is the, the famous John Burns, um, notoriously the earliest man in England, the artist who some favourites here. Um, Magna Carta in the scroll, Magna Carta in the scroll, Hercules defeating the Hydra of the Central Treason. Everybody who was a Whig wanted their portrait taken in this way. This is one of the British Museum fantastic collection. This is Wales again, but it's back of Wales. Um, so there are ceramics of Wales. There's a consumer culture that uses Magna Carta to defend English liberty. In even the level of tea pots and tea services. <laughs> um, Edmund Burke's, I think his strange wife wanted to annoy him. Commissioned a set of tea cups and teapot with Tom Penn. This is a really important document. This is Arthur Beardmore, um, a, a colleague of John Wells, a radical alderman of London, a lawyer, who had been writing scholars' things about the world court and was going to be subjected to a legal arrest under a general warrant. So he very cleverly asked the same engraver who produced the facsimile of um, the Metropolitan Court of Finance to produce this so he could have it available when he was about to be arrested. And this uh, print, you can buy copies today, because you have so many of them, you can buy them today very inexpensively. So Beardmore is presented, you can't quite see it, but his finger pointing at clause 39. No free man shall be taken. Here's his young son, with a finger in the Bible, learning the tradition 
a freedom from his father, but learning it from a text which is almost certainly cross instituted, but it's slightly to the accent of the very widely known. Now, I can't read the biblical text here, but essentially saying it's really important to teach your children about traditions of truth and freedom. That, you know, obviously today we can arrange for the sky to be there, the songs or something. But, but that image of continuity, passing on the tradition, is even still out of the day, I think. It was Gordon Brown who talked about the, the chain of God, the golden chain of liberty from running into you know, democracy. And there were these debates about can we use Magna Carta to teach British citizenship? If you don't have Magna Carta, this is what happens to you. <laughs> a freeborn Englishman, exclamation mark. Um, he's standing on Magna Carta, he's shackled, he has no free speech. This is what will happen if you let the French go. <laughs> okay. These are just a few representations of what I like to think of as our informal constitution. But this really survives into the 20th century. So here we have the artifacts of our liberties, all kept in a chest. And we have Magna Carta, the Bill of Rights, habeas corpus. You um, never decoded what this one was, but it could well be Cook's Institute's eyes. Um, but that notion of a collection of documents holding and representing your freedoms and rights as a constitution is very important. It's even better sort of representation. These are the laws of England. Um, nice pyramid, Magna um, here, bit of rights, habeas corpus, scales of justice, Union Jack. This is from about 1820. So that tradition is, is written to us, the world view of it. Even better, constitutional architecture. But this is the 1890s. Um, and again, Magna Carta, Bill of Rights, Trial by Jury, it's the same old stuff, Habeas Corpus. I'll read that one. Blackstone. Oh, Blackstone, even better, the of Magna Carta and the Charter of the Forest. And most importantly, and this is really the last thing I'll talk about, and we can have some questions. They're connecting these sort of native, contingent, British tradition of freedom with the state of manumission and the capability that would give slaves their freedom in antiquity. So it's made it a universal written. Um, this is, of course, an immigrant wrong. So they, in particular, lawyers misbehave. They pull down the pillars. You know, this is the model of the Temple of Liberty that exists at Rome and in Canberra. Notice Liberty toppling, holding on to the slave there. So it's quite dramatic and interesting iconography, much more subtle than the sort of political cartoons we see today. I, I almost stopped to. This is um, this one. It's the wax model for a medal that they wanted to produce in the 1780s, the Royal Society of Arts prepared this. And again, it makes the connection I just mentioned between the contingent moment, that Magna Carta moment, 
on the field of Rome, this is a representation of John sealing the Magna Carta, with liberty, the goddess of liberty, holding the state of manumission of the Catholic kingdom. You have one side of the coin, you have that moment Rome. And on the other side of the coin, you have the freedoms that it established. These are just some of the slightly more exotic um, versions of Magna Carta into the 19th century, where you see the one side tatting called printing thing. Um, Earl Spencer produced this unbelievably dominant um, text. This, this is just one of the most beautiful pieces of printing I have ever seen. This is an attempt failed by the Royal Society of Arts to use a new technique printing in gold on satin. And they put out a call um, for 10 guineas. You can have your gold copy of Magna Carta printed on either white satin, purple satin, or uh, red satin. How many do they sell? <laughs> this is the only bit that survives. This is another bit of the uh, Spencer one. This is a fantastic sort of image. Again, Britannia holding Magna Carta and the scales of justice. English liberties, brilliant. Religion, morality, loyalty, happiness. French liberty, atheism, poetry, mad sort of people. What I don't quite understand in this list, um, I can understand misery, but one of the bad things that French freedom does is really quite These are just images from when Magna Carta was in America and when the British temple was opened in 1957. Magna Carta became a civil rights document in the 1960s, both in America and in England. The famous case of the Monday of Nine, where Doctor Howe was still with us um, and his lawyer, uh, nine of the people in the main room, British State Department, the Afro-Caribbean community were going to turn into the Black Panthers and start shooting people. This was not they were more interested in music and good food. Um, so, Darkest Howe in the court said, Magna Carta says we should be tried by our equals. There are no black jurors. Well, we don't need black jurors. So from that moment, all of the um, accused spoke in Jamaican patois. And the judge and the legal officer said, we can't understand what you're saying. Well, if you were Welsh, you'd make sure they were Welsh jurors. So they did eventually get two black jurors on, on the um, jury. And this, this was the great tour of 1976, organised by former Prime Minister um, John Major, who's an executive for American Express. And Magna Carta was amazing. Articulated lorry, liberty on the side, was driven around um, America with these outriders, and everywhere it went, it was like, I'm only showing my age, the eagles were arriving in the No, it was the Lincoln copy of Magna Carta, and people flocked to watch it. Um, that's our current Prime Minister, not knowing what Magna Carta um, this, is, this is to do with refugees in uh, Australia. No person shall be bribed for life liberty. Did the Magna 
can't reach Australia, so both people drank in that. Um, now let's get me online. Let's just get the ABs, of course, so I can do that at the moment. Um, let's just do it yourself. We've got option of various events that are going on at the moment. But I want to leave you with this is the best. <laughs> Thank you. 